This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Yesterday, Toronto police said they have now closed the case when it comes to the the 11-year-old girl who claimed that a man had cut her hijab, saying that it was untrue. Uh, where does that leave the discussion? Uh, and specifically, I'm pointing out to uh, just the backlash that came on uh, social media uh, in regard to uh, this case, even, you know, charging the girl with mischief. And my goodness, she's 11 years old. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Safwan Chowdhury is with his campaign spokesman, uh, spokesperson, Islam Understood, Ahmadiyya Muslim, uh, Jamaat Canada, and is with us now. Safwan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem. Thank you very much for having me during this important discussion. So what are your thoughts on this story? Did we rush to judgment on this case? That's a good question. I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking, um, you know, as far as the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is concerned, which is one of the largest Muslim community in Canada. Um, while this young uh, girl is not a member of the community, but as a, you know, as a major national uh, Muslim community, we do take these types of incidences uh, very, uh, and we watch them very closely. Look, our sentiments are that we are relieved, but also saddened at the same time uh, to learn of this report of this uh, alleged incident, um, as, as we learn from the Toronto Police. Uh, we're relieved because of the fact that this attack did not take place. We're relieved that uh, such a hateful act uh, did not occur in our community. We're all naturally saddened that such a serious uh, false charge could be made. Uh, and of course, the consequences of this uh, will be, it could affect various different efforts to prevent the very real incidents which do occur. You know, um, Stats Canada was out with a study that in 2017, just last year, hate crimes were up 60%, particularly towards religious communities, which is both um, Islamophobic attacks, but also anti-Semitic attacks. So um, our concern, and I guess our thoughts are with genuine victims who uh, may, uh, you know, feel reluctant of coming forward in the future, and we really hope that does not happen. And and that we always give victims, uh, any kind of victim, or a victim of whether it's racial discrimination, religious discrimination, or any bigotry, the due attention it deserves. So did we rush to judgment in this case? I mean, some are saying that, uh, th- that this was driven by political correctness. Did we, did, we jump to, uh, did we jump to a conclusion before we knew? I guess I guess obviously we did, um, but but again, you know, I, I guess some are saying that um, that due to political correctness, that this was driven by political correctness. We just assumed, without even waiting to see how it all was vetted or flushed out, uh, that it is what it is, uh, that it is what it was. Um, how do we prevent from rushing to judgment in these cases? Yeah, I, how do we I, I how do we keep it balanced? For sure. I think, you know, a large part of that component, I think, intrinsically comes from who we are as a people, as Canadians, right? We don't stand for these types of acts. We do not stand for this type of bigotry. Um, I think the reaction, uh, which was felt across Canada and, and reverberated around the world of who Canadians are whenever we face or we're faced with even um, an inclination of bigotry, 
And I think we shouldn't lose that intrinsic reaction of ours that we have inherently as a people, as a nation, um, a, a country that prides itself of its diversity and its unity. Um, but of course, uh, naturally, there should always be due diligence. And 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 you know, if if, if you know someone, uh, a child does participate in. Um, an act which is misleading, they should be counseled uh, appropriately. Uh, do we have any insight, uh, any thoughts as to why or how this would have happened? You know, the only insight we have is so far what the police has reported, so no, not particularly, nothing additional to that. Uh, what do you think we can learn from this, Safwan? Look, I, I think that we, we live it. Uh, in a trying time. You know, we live in a times where um, we hear stories of Islamophobia or um, xenophobia or uh, anti- anti-Semitism and, and, and we should react very, very strongly whenever uh, we see signs or uh, an act of bigotry being conducted. Uh, but I think also, we, we, you know, naturally, uh, we should allow its due course of investigation before we jump to any conclusions. Are you surprised by the reaction, not only the initial reaction, uh, but also the reaction, the backlash that seems to have come uh, as a result of it it not being true? Uh, It seems almost unfair that that they're attacking the little girl in this way. What is your thoughts on that moving forward, and how does this uh, change things in your community? Are, Are you worried that there will be a backlash over this? You know, I, I, I have to say that, you know, naturally you, there, there are uh, sometimes eyebrows raised when you read some of the comments. And, you know, matter of fact, I recently learned this morning that a uh, popular, uh, I guess, uh, online or YouTube personality in Canada named Ezra Levent has started a website called hijabhoax.com where he wants to legally charge uh, the girl's mother uh, under a penal code and he's raising money. Uh, to make sure that they're held criminally liable and he's putting out videos and stroking um, divisions. And, and it, it, of course, it is troubling when you have somebody that is, um, you know, taking that pointing the finger approach uh, because certainly while, you know, this, this action should teach kids uh, the seriousness of such actions, but, you know, as, as mature adults, we also have to think about uh, how we want to come out of this experience. Do we want to come out of it being more divided and, you know, stoke those fears among people? Or do we want to come out of this in, uh, in a learning experience to ensure it doesn't happen again? So what do you want the public to take from this? Uh, you know, now that we've heard the story, the case seems to be closed at this point. How do you, what, what do you want the public to remember in all this? Well, I think that uh, one of the things uh, that was quite prevalent is how uh, the entire nation very quickly mobilized and rallied to stand against hatred um, and hate crime. And I, and I hope that we don't lose that uh, intrinsic nature uh, that we have as a people. Um, and uh, But naturally, we, we need to always, no matter you know what's happening in the world, obviously in this recent rising climate of fake news, we have to be very vigilant and cautious about what we're reading, what we're, what we're being, uh, information we're being introduced to, views and opinions. So, you know, this way, you, uh, you, 
you know, people should be in a natural habit of taking a more balanced approach um, and being open to all ideas on all sides and all point of view. Safwan Chowdhury has been with us, campaign spokesperson, Islam Understood, Ahmadiyya Muslims of Canada. Safwan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're going to continue with the story. Uh, yesterday, Toronto police said they uh, have closed the case when it comes to the, le- to the 11-year-old girl who claimed that a man had uh, cut her hijab, saying that the story was untrue. Um, a couple of different aspects of this story. Number one, the way... And, uh, you know, when you think about it, it's a good thing. Everybody jumped on this and, and condemned it, uh, which is great. Like, would you want Canada to have uh, any other reaction? Uh, and then the other uh, question or angle is, did we react too fast? Uh, Prime Minister, the Premier all came out, but again, you're just assuming that this stuff is true. Did we rush to judgment? I guess we did. Uh, is this driven by political correctness? To talk more about all of this, Alyssa Freeman is with his PR, a pop culture expert principal at Alyssa PR. She is with us now, Alyssa Freeman PR. How are you, Alyssa? I am just fine, Scott, and yourself. I'm doing fine, thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it. Thank you. So, did we rush here? I mean, are we using uh, the news as a marketing campaign here? Well, that's a bit extreme, although... It's interesting because, you know, 2020 is always hindsight, and people were saying, you know, various anecdotally going, you know, I think this was sort of a, uh, you know, there's something didn't sound right about this story, or I knew that there was something off about this story. But, you know, here's the thing. As a main narrative, a young girl being attacked and having a religious item moved from her is very powerful. Yeah. And when a narrative like that uh, comes about, in the climate that we are experiencing right now, people will take it um, that it is a real thing. Well, and you, assume it's tr- you assume it's true. Why wouldn't it be? Well, especially when you think of who was backing it. Mm. You know, there was the school board. There was the police. There was the child and the parents. And then they even had a press opportunity for media in the school. Which is very unusual because normally this person is underage, so their identity would be kept secret anyway. Why, why was their identity even known? You know, this is, there's a lot here that I have to question. I have to question why the school decided to jump in and act as a conduit for the message. That wasn't, it didn't happen on school property. It seemed a little opp- opportunist, to be quite honest for the school board to jump in and say, okay, we're going to show something, we're going to, we're going to create a, an example here, and yes, uh, this is so horrible, it was really more emotion over intellect in making the decision here. It really was. The and school they, board should they, not have done what they did. And they say the parents agreed to it. Not our fault, man. The parents agreed. Yeah, well, well who proposed <laughs> the idea? Yeah. You know, don't be passing the buck when you made the original decision, which is, you know, what I hate about school boards. Like, suddenly it's like, oh, well, you know, it really wasn't us. I mean, the parents said they wanted to do it. Well, who made the offer first? Yeah, yeah. So was this driven by political correctness? Of course it was. And because it was so horrific that it happened to a child, yeah. that it um, happened in broad daylight, and she was walking to school with her brother. So naturally, you know, everybody's antenna are up and thinking, this is really horrible. We really need to jump on this. But really, the story would not have taken off had the school board not provided the press opportunity. Because how else would they have found out about it? You know, 
all media monitor police reports. You guys do. Mm-hmm. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. And the police do put them out. So you normally look at them um, maybe a couple times a day. I'm not sure how often they come out or how timely they are updated. So normally there is a lag period between when something is reported and then when something is actually reported in the media. And that's good because it provides a little bit of a check and balance and it provides the proper authorities to do the work when it comes to validating the story. How do we balance this uh, right from the get-go with the school board or, or, or the decision to, to even hold this press conference and expose who this girl was? Because now, unfortunately, we know who she is. Um, uh, how do you balance this? Well, you know, everybody Especially has to in get the a time- message out. And unfortunately for, you know, Muslim advocacy, this kind of takes it a step back, right? Does it set it back? Yes, it does. I mean, people will say, you know, when you hear um, leaders of the movement and advocates saying, you know, we don't want this to diminish any further racism happening to our community by somebody telling a lie. You know, we just can't let it all color everything that we do and say. Unfortunately, people have really, really long memories, and because of the nature of the so-called crime, people are going to remember it because it was a very simplistic action. Girl walking down the street, allegedly. Girl allegedly having her hijab ripped off or cut off with a knife or a scissors. So, you know, the, the Muslim movement itself, like those responsible for advocacy, have a big job to do in shoring up belief when they do come out with a legitimate complaint about something. So it only hurts their own movement. What do we learn from this? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, number one, the school board should know better. You know, when did a school board become the conduit for political correctness or, you know, teaching the world about, you know, horrible things that happened to ethnic um, oh, communities? I'd say about three decades ago. Yeah, well. I mean, many have said they've got, they're, they're going too far. I mean, we've got lots, of, we've got lots of examples of that right down to the holiday concert. I mean, they, they wade into areas yeah. where they should not, and yeah. it is simply a bad executive decision-making. I can't put it any way else. Mm. Really, I can't. It is bad executive decision-making and wading into an area where they really don't have jurisdiction. And in this case, you yeah. know, I'll reiterate, the alleged crime did not happen on school property. There was no reason. It, yes, it was a child who attended the school, but honestly, you know, protocol and best practice dictates that they should have notified the police and waited for the results of an investigation and done what they do best in terms of comforting the girl and, you know, letting her parents know what happened. That is all they should have done. Well, how will this play out? Will people look to play the, the blame game? How will this, who, who do you think will wear this? Well, the school board will wear this, and then unfortunately the Muslim community will wear this. You know, we'll never know why yeah. the young girl did what she did. We just won't. Yeah. And well, wait, which, you know, and lots are saying, well, we should, but we shouldn't have heard the name in the first place. Well, and, and you know, what were you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what were you thinking when it was a great idea to put the girl up? And they probably thought, well, she's a young, impassioned voice. It'll be such a good idea. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, number one, you know, the school board really has to take a long and hard look at themselves and say, what's wrong with our communications protocol here? And they really need to, maybe I should call them Scott, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> and they really need to review it. Yeah. 
that's the first step. And the first step, and also creating policy, because goodness knows, that's what school boards do, creating policy of where they wade into issues and where they should not. What about, speaking of wading in, what about uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Wynne, who both weighed on this, weighed in on this right away, uh, especially Trudeau with the Joshua Boyle stuff that's still, you know, before the courts? Well, you know, he has a lot to answer to. And let me tell you, January 29th can't come soon enough for many of the people of the reporters in the press gallery. Hmm. So there will be a lot of questions. And I think that, you know, I have to say that he probably didn't know that there was an ongoing investigation. But then who would have thought that, you know, Trudeau would offer an audience to this fellow in the first place? So after, I believe what happened, after the audience happened, you know, they called him up and went, uh, mm, got some news for you. How, so, could they, how could the Prime Minister's office not have known that? Well, you know, there's a lot of things that we're questioning now with the Prime Minister's office. Number one, you know, his readiness. Um, in front of the media when he is scrummed. Number two, you know, this whole deal with, you know, having an audience with Joshua Boyle. Unless the, you know, political parties are renowned for taking litmus tests through polls, which they can do and get results in within hours, quite honestly. So they know what their base is thinking about. And perhaps they're thinking that, well, you know, um, have, being a sympathizer to the, uh, to the cause is something that their voters want to see. But you, without sort of doing all the homework behind it. And Trudeau was wearing it, quite honestly. Uh, are you surprised by the reaction, the backlash? Mm, no. No. You know, first of all, you know, we give $10 million to Omar Khadr because it was better than giving him $20 million. And then, you know, there's this whole audience with Joshua Boyle who... You know, gosh, you know, going on a camping trip to, through Afghanistan is not on my bucket list. I don't know about you, yeah, Scott. Really. And then, you know, with a story like this, you know, with the young girl and the hijab, you know, this is just when you're sitting there looking at the news clips or the headlines coming in, and you're seeing, especially in a run-up to a provincial election, any opportunity for your candidate to get out there and make a statement that is positive about something that the media cannot create backlash uh, around. You know, people are really quick to judgment, but you know what? The media cycle is somewhat to blame for people jumping all over things because it's all get the news out first, and if you have to correct it, well, we'll correct it. Maybe you'll see the correction and maybe you won't, but it's important with this minute-by-minute news cycle, never mind a 24-hour news cycle, but it's important with a minute-by-minute news cycle for the media to get out first, and if corrections have to be made, then all you do is, in front of your article on the web, is put updated. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR, pop culture expert principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Angelo DeChico. He's the general manager of Young Drivers of Canada. He is with us now. Angelo, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Do you think we as citizens really know much about highway design? Uh, Because we see a median with a grassy area in the middle, we just assume uh, it's not designed to catch cars. Do uh, Do we need these barriers? Well, the barriers have pros and cons. The cons is, well, takes up a lot of space and it costs way more money the pros are as the previous caller said that it would confine the majority of crashes in the lanes and the direction 
in which the vehicle was traveling that started the crash. So you'd keep it all on the right rather than uh, crossing over. But the reality is that, as you said, you know, the first time you went down, you thought, wow, this is kind of dangerous. And as drivers, what happens is, you know, we get through the first couple of snowfall, snowfalls or we get through um, some hairy weather, uh, high rain, slippery conditions, and we feel, huh, I got the, still got the old skills. Hmm. And what we forget is insight training is where it's at. It's learning or understanding the limitations of our ability, understanding the limitations of the traction available with the vehicle that you're driving on that particular day. And that sneaks up on people, and you find yourself uh, crossing over into an oncoming lane, or you're in a ditch, or you're sliding out of control. Uh, do you think this is uh, accident avoidance that we're unaware of, or do you think this is just carelessness, this is usually just speeding, distracted driving, such? Well, the reality is uh, some new research coming out of Sharp 2, a big conference in the state. It's going to be about 80% uh, of crashes are going to be attributable to distracted driving. So not not paying attention to the changing road conditions or the pitch of the road or the steepness because uh, you're having a thought about the hamburger that you're waiting for at home or the coffee that you need or you're picking your ear or something. And I think many people get lulled into a sense of control when it's a tenuous thing at best at higher speeds. And God bless the engineers and the roadway designers, because the reality is they've done the math. And most of these vehicles, they can predict where they'll end up. Hmm. If you're doing the speed that is posted, uh, it's just some of us don't tend to uh, drive the posted speed limit, or we tend to forget that that posted speed limit is under ideal conditions. Bright, sunny day. Hmm. Uh, dry pavement, you've had two cups of coffee, you had a raise, you're in a really good mood, you're very <laughs> attentive. How often is that? Not so much, eh? Uh, and I understand that, obviously, and you were talking about you know, those that engineer roads, that speed obviously uh, dictates, uh, the speed of the roadway obviously dictates what sort of safety measures are in place. The fact that... Uh, these highways are 90k and not over not 100 or over well, i guess it wouldn't be over uh, well they were designed originally the 401 series was designed to be well over 100 very yeah. few people remember that mm. that uh, during the oil embargoes way back when that 55 alive or 100 kilometers an hour they were actually designed to travel safely under ideal conditions at a higher speed. What hasn't kept up is um, probably the education and public awareness of what ideal conditions are. Hmm. It's not just the car. It's not just the road. It's the driver being focused and actually paying attention to what they're doing rather than their living room, which has been brought into the car, which is now stuffed into a cell phone hmm. or, or a 16-inch screen on the car. 
Uh, do people need a refresher course? Should there be something like that along the lines? Because, you know, once we feel we get our license, if we're lucky enough to get it at 16 or however old, 17, mm-hmm. um, do you think that by the time we're 40, 50, you know, mm-hmm. ah, we're great drivers, we don't need this. Do we need refresher courses? So in the last uh, six, seven years at the Advanced Driving Center, we work with corporate clients and large fleets, and we actually ask everyone to rate their level of driving on a scale of 1 to 10. And the average score is 8.2. There is no one who rates themselves as an average driver. (laughs) And there's only been three or four people that I can remember who've rated themselves as a below average driver. So anyone who remembers their math, in order to do an average, that can't be true. We're all above average, apparently. Uh, so, uh, there, there's now new distracted, uh, driving laws that are making their way through the system. Uh, we were talking to, uh, an officer from Toronto on this, uh, a little earlier on in the week. Uh, now if convicted, uh, you could face a $1,000 fine when this, when this makes mm-hmm. its way through, it, it's still, uh, it, it hasn't, it isn't there yet, but will be soon. Uh, and a three day a license suspension. Mm, that'll uh, probably th- hit someone in the pocketbook. And that uh, short video clip or that voice to text, which should work, but Siri isn't paying attention and you're yelling at her and your blood pressure is rising because she's saying something inappropriate and you don't want her to send it, that is a distraction. So there's cognitive distractions, visual distractions, and manual or physical distractions. And the laws are really going to take care or work towards some of the physical distractions. You can't hold uh, a handheld cell phone. Visual distractions, hopefully they're not putting all kinds of signs for you to be reading. It's the cognitive distractions that are the real goal that I think we need to be thinking about. Are car companies doing enough to combat this? Nah, nah. The, most of this stuff is um, voluntarily um, imposed um, technical standards. So you think about the last car you're in with a half-decent screen. Voluntarily, the car companies allow you to do six pushes to get to one function. So you go from audio to source to fm Hmm. then scroll down to select the station that's a chunk of time of your eyes looking inside the vehicle rather than down that big hill at 90 kilometers an hour it seems we forgot what the word preset means oh yeah that and if it works or you've switched vehicles for a company so a lot of the companies we deal with, they're sending their employees across Canada and across the world, and you pick up a rental car at an airport in a different jurisdiction. How many of you sit down for an hour, hour and a half and read the owner's manual? Not too many, but if you were able to understand the technology and it was very similar from vehicle to vehicle, and I think we're a good step in the right direction. But in the meantime, we're trying to put physical barriers between uh, lanes of traffic 
or rumble stirrups or cat eyes because that's something you can point to and you can say, ha, we did it, and anyone who smashes into it, well, it was their fault, and hopefully not taking someone else's life. But we really should be focusing on um, on the operator of the vehicle. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you can fix, but it's probably, you know, fixing the nut behind the wheel. Hmm. I mean, so do you think the, the driver's license suspension will have teeth? Do you think that will make people change their habits? I think so, and it's the demerit points. So what's going to happen is the insurance companies with demerit points, with the driver's um, abstract, will eventually start hurting people in their pocketbook or their inability to get to and from work or to do their job, and they're going to probably say, hmm, this is a much more serious. Maybe I'm not that 8.2 above average driver. Maybe it's the time to look at an online course or call someone or to get a refresher through my Joint Health and Safety Committee at work because that's the most dangerous thing people listening to us right now do is drive to and from work, is drive to lunch, is to pick up the kids at hockey practice. That's the most dangerous thing we do is mm. driving. Angelo DiCicco has been with us, General Manager of Young Drivers of Canada, talking about uh, safe driving and, of course, uh, medians uh, being along the uh, link and the Red Hill. Uh, Angelo, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Enjoy the sunshine and be safe. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots have been uh, chatting of late uh, how uh, difficult it is uh, or will be for small business to incorporate the minimum wage. Of course, lots of uh, chatter about that in the last week or so uh, in regard to uh, Tim Horton's position and, of course, the premier uh, entering into the discussion. And, um, and you know, as, we, as, as small business, of course, tries to... Uh, uh, um, maneuver with the uh, the new minimum wage that is in place. Uh, today, the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, alongside the Ontario Chamber, provided the Ontario government with recommendations for the upcoming provincial budget that will keep Ontario competitive, as well as help business. To talk more about all of this, the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, Keenan Loomis, he is with us now. Keenan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners out there. Happy New Year to you as well. Keenan, how much weight do these uh, papers have when you send these recommendations? Are they listening, do you feel? I think they're listening. There's a lot of work that's done uh, between the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and uh, Queen's Park, all three parties uh, on Queen's Park, uh, well before a paper like this is issued. And you know, the three parties are very receptive to uh, pretty much everything that the OCC and, and we as a chamber network have produced over the last number of years. So we have good working relationships. There um, are a lot of people listening, and obviously the opposition parties are uh, are pouring over these types of documents looking for uh, ways in which uh, they can bring forth some, uh, some arguments against uh, what the government of the day is doing. Do you find that most of the chambers are on the same page? Absolutely. Well, we're a very strong network, not just in Ontario, but across the country. And so when it comes to federal taxation reforms, for example, um, you found that uh, chambers from St. John's to Victoria were all on the same page. And when it comes to uh, Bill 148 and and minimum wage and a lot of other uh, Ontario-specific issues, um, we're pretty much uh, all united because all all business owners, regardless of where they're located, are, are facing the same challenges. 
We'll touch on uh, 148 in just a sec. Uh, what are you asking for? What's, what's the wish list here? Well, I mean, the big thing is with regards to uh, the increase in the minimum wage, there's a, a $12 billion hit to businesses across Ontario. So there's a $23 billion direct hit uh, as a result of uh, increased wages. Um, $11 billion of that is, uh, is expected to come back into the economy, so to, to stimulate growth. But there's a $12 billion difference there. And uh, what we're finding is, you know, businesses have moved on from the whole uh, litigating the whole issue of whether the minimum wage needs to be increased or not. And, and now it's about how do we survive. So, you know, in this report uh, that we laid out, the pre-budget submission that the OCC has submitted to uh, the, the Liberal Party, um, we've laid out some tax reforms that we would like to see um, that will help increase the competitiveness for Ontario companies. We've uh, laid out some uh, some spending that can be done to uh, some you know smart infrastructural spending that can be done to maximize growth, and then some spending reforms as well in Ontario that can help close that twelve billion dollar gap. Still, the big issue is minimum wage, I guess, isn't it? it? No matter what, it's the elephant in the room at this point. Well, I I said all along, um, leading up to you know December 31st when the uh, the kicks uh, or the changes came in to place that you know there was nobody within the business community in Ontario, um, and there were a lot of associations that were united in um, in the the positioning of of you know asking the government to slow down the increase. I mean, but there was nobody that was against. Um, you know, uh, paying a living wage. Um, you had no business groups that were saying keep the minimum wage uh, where it was. The issue has always been the, the rapidity with which um, it's now rising and, and the ability of businesses to be able to absorb that. But again, you know, we've, we've moved on. There's, there's no doubt now the minimum wage is, is $14 an hour. Um, we're not looking to roll back that. Uh, we might be uh, looking to continue our advocacy in terms of slowing down the next raise, which will be uh, January 1st of next year, to $15. But again, we're, we're committed to ultimately meeting that goal. Um, and it's just a matter of how, uh, how quickly and what are the other things that the government can do to help offset those impacts. Are you disappointed that this discussion be, uh, did become politically divisive? Uh, you know, and, and we talked about this at length last week uh, with various experts from both sides on the show. And, you know, whenever you seem to question the minimum wage, it was either you were against it or you were for it. And that really, as you mentioned, isn't the debate. It was the speed in which uh, it was implemented. But that didn't seem to, that, that all seemed to get lost in the sauce. And it, it seems that, uh, it, you know, it became not an issue of of when it was either you were in or you were out, which makes yeah. which makes debate tough. <laughs> well, it does, and and you know business groups are being painted as cold-hearted capitalists, you know, and and again, how is the small business them. community feeling about that? <laughs> well, you know, what are you they're, hearing? They're having difficulties. You know, what we found more than. Um, uh, more than really other sectors, the the sector that was disproportionately impacted was you know hospitality, um, the restaurant industry. And, you know we have a great, great, vibrant um, organic west, uh, restaurant industry here in Hamilton. A lot of very progressive people behind um, behind those ventures, and yet even they were coming to us saying, you know, look, this is going to be really, really difficult for us. Obviously, we're going to have to pass on some increased costs. Um, to our uh, 
to our uh, customers, but we're also going to have to do things differently in terms of scheduling. And, you know, I think that, you know, unfortunately, Tim Hortons became kind of a flashpoint here, Mm -hmm. but the the measures that they are undertaking to deal with uh, these impacts are exactly the types of measures that businesses across uh, the province are having to deal with at this moment. And we we warned the province that this is exactly um, what's going to happen. And so nobody should be surprised. This was meant to be a political football. It was dropped in um, at this very time for that very purpose. And so, you know, you asked, do you lament that it became political? Well, it was meant to be from the very beginning. Mm. Uh, As you mentioned, Tim Horton sort of became the whipping boy, the poster boy for all of this. Are we missing the point uh, by picking on the richest franchisee owners of a a specific Tim Hortons? What about the mom and pops that are trying to get by? Exactly. Like I said, um, everybody across the province... Uh, every business owner is having, and, and, and in fact, every not-for-profit owner as well. Um, every employer uh, in this province is having to now look at their budget and figure out how they're going to do things dr- differently. So here we are, Keenan. Over two weeks in, uh, as you said, the hullabaloo over the Tim Hortons has seemed to have subsided. What are you hearing from from small business owners? How are they going to make this work? What are what, what will the fallout be? What will we see this year? Well, as we predicted, there will be an increase in cost, so inflation will go up, uh, bump up a, a little bit. I've already seen, you know, as, as a consumer myself, um, an increase in, in costs of some of the things that, uh, you know, I buy on a, a regular basis. Um, we're going to see scheduling changes. We're going to see people uh, uh, cut back, at least until they, they, you know, have some certainty in terms of uh, how this is going to, to impact them. So, again, all of these measures were predicted, um, so they should not be uh, news to anybody, including the premier. Um, do you are you surprised by the premier's reaction at this point, considering all of this was predicted? Uh, you know, to me, it almost seems, and I don't want to make it too political, but I guess that's my job. Um, it almost seems like uh, the electricity file. Great idea, you know, let's do this, uh, but just lack of planning, due diligence, cost analysis. It almost seems to be the same thing here. Uh, and then later Kathleen Wynne came out and said, well, we made a mistake there, rising them too quick, too fast. Do you think we'll see the same thing here, or is this it? It's done, it's it's up to the next government to continue it or or slow it down? It'll be up to the next government, uh, including if the the Liberals were to win re-election, to determine whether you know it, we ultimately do raise the minimum wage from fourteen dollars to fifteen dollars next January first. Perhaps um, you know we we can wait a little bit longer uh, again just to make sure that uh, business owners aren't uh, feeling a disproportionate uh, impact. Um, but you know what we're finding mostly from our our small business owners and you know again people aren't looking to to relitigate that whole fight um, what they're trying to to figure out now is what are the new rules how does it impact me and what do i have to do going forward so we as a as a chamber network the ontario chamber of commerce you can find it on our website as well we have a handbook um, produced by mnp an accounting firm uh, here in uh, in ontario that uh, helps uh, small business owners um, deal with those impacts and, and walks them through all the steps. It's very nicely laid out. So, you know, that we're finding that most people are, are trying to now access those resources um, and uh, saving their breath on, on, on the whole Bill 148 thing because it's over. Yeah. Will, what sort of tax incentives can they give small business in order to help absorb this? Uh, are we expecting them? Would they have to be too great to offset this? 
Well, what we've found, so that uh, Minister Souza in uh, last year's budget uh, did reduce the small business tax rate, and, you know, that's certainly welcome. Um, but really, the impact is, is only about $500 million. Again, we, we have a $12 billion gap now to close. Um, and, and the impact uh, to a small business owner um, was no more than about $5,000 uh, of additional money being uh, uh, staying within their coffers. So really, you know, that, uh, that measure was welcome but very small. Um, what we're talking about is further reducing the corporate in- income tax rate. It was supposed to go to 10% a number of years ago. It's stuck at 11.5. So we say, you know, fulfill your promise on that. Um, reducing the marginal income tax rate, reduce the employer health tax. There's all kinds of other taxes mm. um, and deductions and, and all of that that can go a long way to uh, to closing that gap. What do you? What is your response to the government? And even Minister Flynn said this. All, you know, all you got to do is raise prices here. What's the problem? <laughs> well, the problem, of course, is that. Uh, you know, consumers, uh, there's low-income consumers and, and high-income consumers, and so everybody's being uh, impacted in the same way. And um, and we know families are, are already having difficulty with, you know, stuff like uh, child care uh, rates, and those are going up for, for everybody. So, you know, that that's obviously um, the, the thing that most businesses are going to do, but we can't ignore the impact that that's going to have on the vast majority of consumers. So are you confident, Keenan, that this money will be returned back to the economy? Or yes, it will, but just not as much as it's, it has been taken out? Not as much. There's Half of the, the money will return back to the economy. And, the, you know, those are the studies that uh, that we as a, as a network have, um, have uh, helped um, lead. And so... You know, and, and, and we know that there are going to be impacts uh, in terms of employment. Um, you know, some studies show that 150,000 uh, jobs will be lost. Some are as low as 50,000. But even if you average them out, it's somewhere around just under 100,000 jobs will be lost. Um, and so, you know, the, our whole point was if you stretch this out over five years, you can minimize that impact by 74%. So instead of, say, you know, 100,000 uh, jobs being lost, you would now reduce that by 74%. So, you know, in, in, in elongating the time with which you, uh, you bring in this, uh, this minimum wage increase, you can save a, a lot more jobs. So we're hopeful that once we get past the election that uh, either of the three parties that would be forming government will, uh, will buy that. Advocates of this uh, increase said that this, uh, some have said that this is, you know, the greatest redistribution of wealth that, that we've seen in, in decades. Um, that being said, uh, well, how do you answer that? How, how, do, you, how do you respond to that, that, that this will change people's lives? Well, again, the issue is, well, you know, so if consumer prices are going up, then then even the person who's working, making $15 an hour now on minimum wage is going to be spending more. So, you know, the, the impact is not going to be nearly as great as people think. And and then, obviously, you've got to take into account the jobs that will be lost and, and what the net effect that that has on the economy. And then the biggest thing going forward for us is, you know, what does this do to our competitiveness as a jurisdiction here in, in Ontario? We know that the tax rate in the U.S. is going down. Um, and so our uh, competitiveness in that regard is now uh, eliminated completely. Um, and, you know, of course, we have higher uh, hydro rates than, uh, 
than any other jurisdiction, a whole bunch of other uh, taxes and, and fees, and we've got a carbon tax coming in within a, the next couple of years. So the biggest issue for no us wonder why we have to raise no wonder why we have to raise the minimum wage. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but who's going to want to do business in Ontario, yeah. you know, going forward? And yeah. and you know, it, all we have to do is, is look at, uh, at New York and Michigan now uh, with the lower uh, corporate tax rate uh, federally in the U.S. We've lost that advantage that we had uh, over just those two jurisdictions, uh, neighboring jurisdictions. And, mm. you know, a lot of big business owners are, are looking at not just New York or Michigan, but they're looking at North Carolina or, or Texas or, or wherever, trying to figure out where their next investments should be made. And many, and the, the point I was making there is many are asking, uh, why, do we, why do we not spend more time uh, trying to find good-paying jobs and create them in our province rather than trying to raise uh, the minimum wage to make up for it? Uh, that being said... Uh, uh, why have we we talked about Tim Hortons earlier on and how they've sort of been uh, the main person, uh, certainly the poster poster people here? Why have we not heard more from other small businesses on this? Well, I, I think that there's a uh, a little bit of a stigma, probably. Uh, you know, again, we have you know many members who have come to us saying, you know, keep keep fighting the good fight uh, on Bill 148. Um, but obviously they're not, you know, coming forward in the spectators saying that they're concerned because, you know, then there's going to be a social media pile on and, um, you know, nobody wants that. So, uh, you know, businesses across Ontario are really happy in cases like this. Uh, to speak through associations like ours. And I think we've found that uh, the OCC has gotten a lot of support from the, uh, the business community across Ontario uh, on, this, uh, on this advocacy issue. What about small biz, uh, Keenan, that's for this? I mean, I think Cake and Loaf spoke up and said, you know, we're, yeah. we paid our, our people more. Like, what's the deal? It didn't kill us. How do you address that? Well, their employees are already at, uh, you know, $15 or more. It's so a specialized they, thing, so it's not necessarily a minimum wage anyway. Yeah, and, and, you know, they were already at that level. So I don't know if their wages have increased as a result. But, you know, obviously they're going to pass on the cost to the consumer. That's, you know, exactly what's expected to them, uh, on them. So, you know, no issues for them because uh, it's just their, uh, their, their customers are going to have to pay more. So is that the mantra that other businesses should be just looking at? I mean, that's basically what, what Minister Flynn said, hey, raise your prices. Well, that's what uh, everybody's saying. So, um, yeah, that's going to be, again, one part of the solution. But what we're going to find is that, you know, there's a, there's a threshold, a price point at which, you know, um, you're going to get diminishing returns on, on the uh, increase in the rate. So that's why we're coming in with uh, this, uh, these 11 recommendations to help uh, offset all the other impacts that businesses are going to be feeling. Keenan Loomis has been with us, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Uh, today, the Hamilton, uh, along with the Ontario Chamber, provided Ontario government with recommendations that they'd like to see uh, coming up in the next provincial budget. Keenan, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.